is depression funny? Not inherently. I think like the byproduct of it, it's reduction and nihilism, which I think is funny. But I don't think like a lack of serotonin is inherently funny. Says there's something wrong with me. I got the sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. This program is all about explaining and exploring life with clinical depression through the lens of comedy. We're not trying to minimize it. We're not refusing to take it seriously. It is serious. People live in misery. People die. But if you can laugh at it as well, you can take away some of its power. Hello. My name is Neil Brennan. I am a comedian and a writer and a director, and we're in Venice, California. Neil Brennan has been behind a lot of the best comedy of the past 20 years. And I mean behind it, not in front of the camera or the microphone, but as a writer, director, producer. He co-created the series Chappelle Show. He's written for SNL, The Daily Show. He directs movies, TV shows, commercials. Even if you don't know the name Neil Brennan, every person in comedy does. Neil offered my producer and me beverages. I'm having some water. You guys want any water? I'm good, thanks. All right. And I'm now I this is me. I have a soda stream. This is me soda streaming. We hung out talking at his house near the beach in Venice, California. It was cluttered up with stuff, video game consoles, sneakers, gifts from celebrities, some of them. It wasn't a dirty place, just like the place of someone too busy working on other things to tidy up. It looks like you have two soda streams. I have many soda streams. That's, well, because I'm so successful. This is the point. You, you are successful enough to have multiple. Here's another thing. Soda streams break like crazy. And I, the reason I have so much clutter on my house is because I hate throwing things out, which sounds like I'm a, I'm a hoarder. But I hate just going like, here, you take it, landfill. Like, fucking take my shit. Historically, Neil's been eager to let one of his big-name comedy friends have the spotlight. But for a while now, he's been working hard on his own stand-up. In his acclaimed 2016 Netflix comedy special, Three Mics, Neil has one microphone on stage for regular stand-up comedy. Yeah, whereas, which a lot of these sites, you just like YouTube, you got people giving thumbs up, thumbs down that are just not qualified. Um, because I was on YouTube. All right, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Dun, 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 dun. Like the most famous song of all time. 10,000 dislikes <laughs> on YouTube. I'm not kidding. That many people are like, your music stinks, bro. And I know music. I'm from Tampa. Thumbs down. One mic for one-liners. Getting a neck tattoo is people's way of saying, yeah, minimum wage is fine for me. <laughs> And a third mic for real life stuff. Depression feels like you're wearing a weighted vest. I, I, I always felt like I was at a, at, a, at a disadvantaged mood or energy-wise to my peers. It was never life-threatening. It was just life-dampening. And the medication could take some of the weights out of the vest, but I still came across people as either bored or cold or superior, none of which I wanted to come across as. Although I'll tell you, you know who always loved my attitude? Black dudes. Always. Yeah. They'd be like, Neil, man, you don't give a fuck. 
And I always want to say, well, that's because I'm sad. And he talks a lot about his dad. My parents were old when I got here. I'm the youngest, so they were in their 40s when I got here. Um, they, were from the, they, were, they were born in the 1930s, so they were from the we did the best we could generation. If you criticize their parenting in any way, they would just go, ah, oh, we did the best we could. And I always felt like, really? That was the best you could? So, Dad, you'd get drunk, hit your kids, and think to yourself, now this is me at my best. As good as Neil's life appears to be now, his memories of when it wasn't, growing up the youngest of 10 kids, are never far away. Father, violent alcoholic. Mother, long-suffering Irish Catholic married to an alcoholic. Management, meaning it's like the three M's of codependency, which is management, manipulation, and martyrdom. Um, and I think uh, my mom qualifies for those when dealing with my father. And uh, I was the youngest, so I, in terms of like forming me, I think I had to argue with like adults from the time I was like five. Um, just and to I'm, get what you needed? Yeah, just to even like to be heard. Like I had to argue with loud, angry people. And in order to argue with them, you need you have to become them. Uh, no, so I became a, I mean, I don't think I can be, I, I'll say I can be loud. I don't think I'm, I think I, fi, the older I get, the more I realize like, oh, you're overcompensating all the time. What I should probably say at volume three, I say at volume like nine. Mm. Um, so. Do you, do you explain it for two minutes when 10 seconds would have done? Yep. Yep. That's correct. Um, so I'm not sure if that was a dig. I'll take it if it was. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like that's the, so yeah, you, I end up like, that's been formative. Were you in a situation where you were, they all say this about big families, where you were raised more by your siblings than your parents? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Like my sisters, I think, uh, actually I shouldn't even say my sister, my brother, Tommy raised me a lot. He worked for like the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago Bulls. And so I would go to Cubs, but games and Bulls games, like, all the time, which is great. Um, so, and he was just a nice dude. He was super generous with his time, and he liked me and my brother Danny. Like he liked, I think he liked hanging out with us. So, he was super. He was great about that. And then when we moved to uh, Philly, Tommy stayed in Chicago, and then Kevin, my brother Kevin, was in New York. So, I started hanging out with Kevin more. What was the role of comedy in the house growing up? I mean, looking back, like my brother Tommy was funny, um, and then Kevin became a comedian. So uh, I didn't really grow up with Kevin that much. Like by the time I was, I can remember he was kind of moving out. So Tommy was the Tommy's just like a gadfly uh, provocateur. <laughs> I'm, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but but he was just like a funny pain in the ass. When I was in high school, Kevin was doing stand up, so it was like, oh. Okay. And I was always pretty funny. So I was like, oh, I'll, I can, comedy can be like a job. Was comedy something that you would use to uh, avoid your dad or get noticed by your dad? Like, how was it used tactically or functionally? I think with my dad, it was more like, it, I think I used it as like a, as a good valve for myself, as like a valve for um, I, probably pain or sadness. With my dad, I was—I just chose, like, it was more of a cold war. Like, I just stay away from him. And then when did depression come into play? When was the first 
first time you noticed that something was going on in that department? Well, I don't know. I mean, that the thing of, it's hard to know exactly when, like, because, you know, when you're in, when you're in high school, you're like, a lot of it's like trying on personalities and like, what am I like? Am I like, you know, am I going to be like sardonic or, I mean, I was always pretty sardonic, but, but you don't know, like, is this because, uh, is this like, um, is this like borrowed or inherited or am I actually, do I actually feel this way? So I don't know. I used to cry all the time as a little kid. That maybe was a good indicator. I don't know. I don't, I, I like cried like every day. So I don't know if that's, it's impossible to say. Time passes. Neil grows up, moves out, keeps working at figuring out who he is. I was going to film school, right? Where? NYU. Okay. And was working the door at uh, the Boston Comedy Club in New York. And I just hated fucking film students. And I really like comedians. I really felt like a kinship with comedians. So I basically dropped out and started working in the comedy club, not as a comedian though. Um, because the comedians at that point were like the guy, the regular show was like Louis, Attell, Chappelle, Romano, like not kidding. Um, it's and a good lineup. Yeah. And these, none of them famous, none of them, but, and Marin, like, but good, you know. Um, Excuse me. Oh, sorry, I'm just perfect. <laughs> Excuse me. I just had a wicked salad, bro. Um, so that was the politest burp I've ever thank seen. Thank you very much. Um, that's how we burp in Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. You wouldn't know anything about no, that. No, no. Yeah. Much a dignified burp. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I was like, I was very intimidated by those guys and should have been. So I stayed out of it and started like giving people tags like Chappelle, maybe say this, maybe say that. So then he would, he would use them and that felt great. Started getting writing jobs kind of through that. Um, and then when I was around comedy writers, I was like, oh, these are my, these are like, these people are also my people. Um, and uh, comedy writers <clears throat> might being my people because they're, they're, I would say 80% of comedy writers are clinically depressed. Uh, and they're, it's their like macabre there. It's like total gallows humor. So young Neil Brennan writes these tags, jokes, riffs, material for stand-ups who are his friends and who go on to become household names. He gets to work fixing his head, too. Once I started taking it, I was like, oh, this is way better. Once it being Zoloft. Oh, okay. When I was 23 um, or maybe 24. So what made you start taking Zoloft? Um... I was going to therapy and I think I had like a, I like woke up like, like suddenly, like anxiously. And <clears throat> I think my therapist felt like, well, that was like between that and like my, my, I think she called it uh chronic dysthymia. Dysthymia, a mental disorder with the same symptoms as depression, less severe, but the symptoms last longer. Those were the two like qualifiers for um, for antidepressants. And what made you do therapy? What what led you into that? Oh, because I was in a relationship and I was like, I didn't like it. Yeah. And I was like, well, if you don't like it, she's she's great. You must be something wrong with you. So I would like just and I pretty much stayed in therapy for that reason for the last twenty years um, <laughs> to make myself a better boyfriend. Um, and I've gotten, 50, ladies, I've gotten 15% better. 
So mission accomplished. It's like stand up. You got to do it. You got to be a boyfriend for 10 years no, I, dude, before you're me. any good at it. I, I've, <laughs> I've kind of just given up the notion that like how I am as a boyfriend is not an indicator of a life well lived. <laughs> I know that sounds like there are people that probably disagree with me, but like, I just, it's like my new thing is like, as is like, I'm not changing. What do you think? That's all I want to say. That's all I want to say on this podcast. Um, thank you for coming. I'm kidding. Uh, no, but it's something to think about. Um, yeah, so I went. I was going to therapy for that, and then I realized, like, oh, I have problems. As he works on those problems, family relationships, depression, Neil also keeps working on comedy, including writing with Dave Chappelle, who is already on his way to being one of the all-time great comedians. Together, they wrote the 1998 film Half-Baked, a comedy about and for the stoned. Jim Brewer was in it. Don't worry. I'm not going to do what everyone thinks I'm going to do. Flip out, man. Here's Neil in three mics. Like when Half Bake came out, it wasn't well-reviewed, and I'd say correctly. Um, but my dad was like such a narcissist that he was like mad at me somehow. Like I'd embarrassed him. You know, famously, Harry Truman, the president, when he was sitting president, his daughter did a play and got a bad review. And Truman wrote the reviewer a nasty note threatening to fight him on White House stationery. <laughs> yeah, like that's the way you're supposed to do it. Whereas I feel like my dad would have written like, read your review of Neil's movie, spot on. Neil had to figure out what was next, and there was an internal disagreement. Neil wanted to step into the spotlight himself. Depression, Neil's mental roommate, was against the idea. Oh, I did stand up when I was like 18, stunk, 23, not bad. But then I would always see this thing of like being deferential, of like, well, I couldn't. I don't need the attention like that. You, I'm not. That's what a low impulse to need that much attention. Did you have, did you want to be doing it, but you talked yourself out yeah, of it? Yeah, of course. Um, and, and again, it's hard to, when you're writing with Chappelle, it's kind of hard. And so that's, he to me is like, a, yeah, my buddy that's a stand-up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's very popular, and, but he's just my buddy. So you kind of compare yourself to your buddies and he happens to be one of the best ever. So, Looking back, not a great person to compare myself to. So. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but who knew? Uh, I like basketball, and yeah, my friend is yeah, LeBron my friend, James. Yeah, my friend, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so that was sort of what I was comparing myself to. If I'd lived in Arizona or something, it would have been way easier. But so I, and, and I had another way to make money from comedy. So once we did Half-Baked, I was like, hey, just, you know... I'll just write movies. And I wrote with a guy named Mike Schur for a couple of years and, uh, and we've sold a couple of movies and I, and I would never do stand up. I would, I loved going to clubs, but I just never did it. I'm like a club rat. I think I like, I just like going, I like being at comedy clubs. Like I just, I understand it. I know the culture. I, I know what's expected. Even when I'm not performing, I just like the environment. So uh, then around 28, I was like, I want to do stand up again. So did a little bit, uh, but it, or maybe 29. And then we started Chappelle show and I was like, I can't. And then I would do it a little bit during Chappelle show, but not really. 
Neil and Dave Chappelle created Chappelle's Show, debuting in 2003. Dave in front of the camera, Neil behind it. It's one of the funniest, most daring, and most popular sketch comedy series ever. It pushed the idea of what you could even put on TV. Example, one of the characters they created was Clayton Bigsby, played by Chappelle. Clayton Bigsby is a blind white supremacist who is black, but doesn't know he's black because no one has ever told him. I noticed you referred to uh, African-Americans. What exactly is your problem? How much time you got, buddy? Where would I start? Well, first of all, they're lazy, good-for-nothing tricksters, crack-smoking swindlers, big butt-having, wide-nose-breathing all the white man's air. They eat up all the chicken, they think they're the best dancers, and they stink. Did I mention that before? Yes, I believe you did, sir. After a few seasons, Chappelle quit the show abruptly. Said later he was burnt out, felt like people were laughing at the race jokes, but missing the social commentary the jokes were based on. Neil was looking for what to do next. He thought maybe give stand-up another shot. The show ended, and I was like, ah, I, sh- I, I didn't want to do it because I was like, I thought everybody would yell about Dave. So I waited like till I was like 33 and then started in earnest. So you thought that having co-created Chappelle's show, people would be upset at you for doing stand-up? Yeah, or they would just like want to know where Dave was. Yeah. Um, so, which is again... That sort of points to a low opinion of It certainly does, yourself. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, but that's kind of my whole thing. It's like, I'm not great, but I'll write for great people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't look at me. Look at this guy. You think I'm good. Wait till you see this fucking guy. Um, but those people are great in part because of the yeah, stuff you're Yeah, I don't for. even get into that. Yeah. Like, I don't even go that far. Uh, I think they're great. In, I mean, whatever. I think Dave's great independent of me. The show, the TV show, I would say was great because of both of us. But stand-up, not at all. Um, uh, so, yeah. So that speaks to... And that's kind of been the... The uh, that's kind of what Three Mics is about, in some way, and because all of these people are a, I realized one of the reasons I'm a good like you know writer, producer, director is because you know dealing with an alcoholic, it's a lot of defense. It's a lot of like defense and what are they thinking and I have to think ahead and I have to, so. Especially in abuse of alcohol. Yeah, an abuse, yeah, because you'll get popped. So so it's, it's a not producing or writing or directing for the people that I work with is not, I'm not saying it's like dealing with an alcoholic, but it makes me, uh, makes me good at perceiving minor things that can, that will aggra- that are aggravating them or something they're going to need or something that they're, you know, it's like, it's anticipatory, which makes, which is part of what makes me probably good at it. So you can see a problem before it's yeah. fully bloomed. Yeah. Or, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not so deferential, but I'm deferential enough. Like, you know, you know, there, you have to be. A big thing with, with children of alcoholics too is, 
is kind of shutting down, putting up a lot of walls, not, not forming relationships because people only hurt you. Yeah. Um, but it seems like you've, you've spent your whole life making really strong friendships yeah. and great relationships. The, but Chappelle himself has said that I go through life, I'm extending my arm like a Heisman Trophy tr- person, like go through life pushing people away. Um, Do you think that's true? Yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> then I prove it by like, what do you think? It was going so well. Uh, no, yeah, of course. I think it's absolutely true. Like, I think it's true, and I think it's. I had the thought the other day, like, you should be uh, hopeful, <laughs> meaning, uh, like, faithful that good things are gonna, ha- or like, hopeful because I'm very like, oh, okay, like I'm not. I I very, I don't get excited about much because uh, I think it's because I'm like feel like it's going to end or there's going to be some like other shoe to drop or um, and I had the thought like no you should be like you'd enjoy life more if you really were like appreciative or um, if I got my hopes up did you hear what. Neil did there. He went from the word hopeful, which is positive, to got my hopes up, which indicates disappointment. His mind steers him into something worse. Now, the problem with getting your hopes up is a lot of the time it's based on shitty information. It's getting your hopes up, I think, is a lot of like, I'm, this thing is going to fix everything. You know, if, if it's like conditional happiness. If I, if the, if I get this car or if i get this job or if i get this girl then everything's going to be solved and so i think that's part of why i don't do it because i realize the the futility of thinking like that but also it keeps me from being disappointed well in a a depressive mind too when you get that car you'll think well i gotta get a better car than this or i gotta you know i gotta gotta get to the next thing i got it and it didn't work now what i'm running out of options you know, like uh, that's the peak. So what am I going to do? Like now what? I mean, like I can look at your career and say, oh, lots of really great talented people consistently want to work with Neil mm-hmm. and make really cool things. Mm-hmm. Do you see it that way? Do you see your life that way? Yeah. I like, like, uh, absolutely. Like, um, I often think how much better could this be going? Do you know what I mean? Like, well, how much better could this be going? Here are the ways in which it would be going better. Uh, listen up. Hear that? He's doing it again. Neil knows he's doing great. Depression steps in and says it's not enough. I could be more uh, inspired as a writer, meaning I could be churning out more material. I could be churning out material at the level of an hour a year. I'm not. I'm churning out material at about 20 to 30 minutes a year. Um, so, so I'm, I'm, so I'm mad about that. You're not measuring up to, no, I'm not measuring up to Louis Burr, Aziz and, uh, anybody else? Maybe, I don't know, Chris or Dave or somebody, Dave. Um, so, all right. So I'm mad about that. And, uh, I wish I were doing bigger venues. No, I'm not doing any venues, but I wish I were doing, you know, 
thousand seat theaters, like Melania's or whatever. Melania, I would put Melania on my list. On my list of people, I am furious at myself for not being. <laughs> um, yeah, like so. So again, so that's my thing. If my life was, if I had that, then my life would be. But again, it's like I know. I was telling someone the other day. This is how how fucking stupid my self esteem was, and probably still is in some part. So did Chappelle show and then I would tell myself that I was a good sketch writer, but I wasn't I couldn't write for Shy Live because I, I could write single cam sketches like Chappelle show, pre-tape film sketches, but I couldn't do multi-cam live sketches. That was my caveat. And then I when Chappelle hosted SNL, I wrote a good multi-cam sketch. And then I was like, oh, I can do that too. <laughs> uh, but the fact that I was like parsing out types of sketches to shit on myself. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like the, it just speaks to how fucking dumb my inner monologue You're constantly was. looking for ways that you suck. Yeah. It's like, well, now we're really cut, cutting it pretty thin. Well, I mean, I, I, I talked with another comedian about this who said that he reached a point where he could make a living doing comedy, which was his whole life all he ever wanted. But then, you know, he didn't fix his depression right because that's not how things are yeah and and then you could just then he stopped believing that anything could that that any achievement could ever oh satisfy. that's the that's the you know i say this all the time but everyone says uh money won't bring you happiness people hear that and they go well let's see <laughs> every single to a person goes well i i may be different let me try i'd like to give it a shot yeah uh exactly so but i've had conversations with the biggest movie stars in the world who've had come to the exact same conclusion rough childhood yet he succeeds in comedy a chronic mental illness that makes it hard to form friendships yet he forms all these friendships to make incredible things creating neil's life took a lot of work for neil Coming up, he works even harder to try to not work so hard. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. You know, we enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's fun. It's a way of dealing with depression and maybe demystifying the disease a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. Depression is a serious disease. It has real consequences. The good news is that people can and do get better. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can really use in your day-to-day -day life. What to say, what not to say. And it has stories from people who tell you what it's really like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org. You can take the pledge right there to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Neil Brennan, who had the one-two punch of an abusive home and depression to wrestle with, and who carved out a successful comedy career in spite of that. As we heard earlier, he got some help from Zoloft in his early 20s. So when I started taking Zoloft, I remember telling Chappelle, I go, I, I think I know now why people dance, <laughs> which sounds like a thing a robot would say. Um, but it was a person who never 
who who kind of reduced all their feelings to the point of what's the word I use atrophy. Um, and Zoloff worked fucking amazingly for like nine years, probably. Um, and then 24 to 30, more than nine years, maybe like 12 years. Uh, yeah. And then it stopped, it kind of crapped out on me. And, uh, so then I, I doubled the dose, but that would make me nauseous, but I didn't realize that's what was making me nauseous. I thought I was eating too many lifesavers. True story. What? I was eating uh, sugar-free lifesavers. And again, you never think it's the most obvious thing uh, that I was vomiting every night at 640. Um, uh, I just thought it was I was eating too many sugar-free lifesavers. Because <laughs> um, that was the only thing that had changed in my life. So that I'd ordered a bunch of sugar-free lifesavers on. Not that I doubled uh, medication. So with Zoloft not working, double Zoloft making things worse, and Lifesavers having been framed as a patsy, Neil set out to find something else. He looked at all the options and tried a lot of them. Ketamine, for instance, which puts you in a kind of trance. It's used as a party drug, it's used as a horse tranquilizer, and doctors have found it can be effective against depression when nothing else works. So Neil gave it a shot. It's a real doctor in West LA and go to his office. It's like regular doctor's office. Like there were other types of doctors there and old people and all that shit. And, um, and they, one day I think I just answered some questions and then the next day I went back and he administered ketamine. How does he administer it? You basically sit on a hospital bed kind of thing and they put an IV in your arm and you, and you just fucking trip. You literally are there, sitting, sitting slash lying there, but you're gone, gone. How long are you gone? Forty-five minutes, and you can kind of hear things happening outside your body, but I couldn't keep my eyes open. Like I kept thinking, if there's an earthquake, I'm fucked. Like because I wouldn't be able to. Like I wouldn't. I, I was immobile. And did it work? Like did uh, it- yes. Well, the, when I came out of it the first day, I was like, Jesus Christ, it's so severe. You just feel like. I came out of surgery and then because it is an anesthetic so that it stands to reason and I was like I'm not going to do that again you're just like woozy I'd come home and like sleep I just couldn't and but the next day I woke up with a really clear feeling and I was like shit all right I'll do it again and then that clear feeling never came back and then my eyes burnt for months scratch ketamine off the long-term solution list so then I went like down a bunch of brintelics and uh, like five or six different ones and none of them really worked. Then they all had side effects. Um, and then I tried, um, um, TMS, uh, short for transcranial magnetic stimulation. TMS involves wearing what looks like a bike helmet that sends your brain magnetic impulses. Abraham Verhovsky is a psychiatrist in Edina, Minnesota. He's been treating patients using TMS for about eight years. TMS is a non-medication way to treat depression, to not just treat depression, but to treat treatment-resistant depression, meaning uh, people who have not been successful uh, in treating their depression with medication, either because of lack of tolerability or lack of efficacy. Unlike uh, medication, this is a somatic, meaning a physical type of a treatment. Um, And the theory 
behind this treatment is that it stimulates the neurons to produce the the neurochemicals, the neurotransmitters that are not being produced when a person is depressed. The the, the studies, the, the, the research in this began back in the mid-80s, uh, and the techniques were refined and finally uh, proven to be uh, um, effective for the treatment of depression uh, by utilizing a certain protocol. That protocol is uh, one treatment uh, per day, five days a week, Monday through Friday, uh, for six weeks. Uh, so that's the standard. Each treatment also has a standard in itself. It, you deliver a total of 3,000 pulses, this machine pulses intermittently, uh, over the course of actually a little over 37 minutes. Uh, that's how long each session lasts. So af- after delivering 30,000 pulses, that's the end of the session. Neil filmed himself getting the treatment. Hold on. Let me, I'll play it for you. Okay. Uh, to give you a real sense of what you're dealing with here. Um, you keep a video of yourself getting yeah, TMS on your phone? Yeah, I posted um, on Instagram at one point. Um, but it was too sexy, so I had to take it down. <laughs> um, I got too many women. Community women standards. love mental illness. In the video, Neil is alert, watching TV, and then the pulses come. Neil says he completed the TMS treatment and then felt great. He stopped Zoloft. He stopped trying anything else. It had worked. And it was just in time for a really busy period in his life. He was about to tape a special, and he was about to film a big Sprite commercial with LeBron James and the rapper Lil Yachty. Even if this were a metaphor about Sprite, and I was talking about Sprite, and Lil Yachty here was paid by Sprite to write lyrics about Sprite. I still wouldn't tell you to drink Sprite. And even if all these... All right, so I'm on nothing, right? And getting ready to do three mics for Netflix, do the taping. And I meet a bodybuilder. So I'm talking to the bodybuilder. And he goes, oh, I sell HGH, human growth hormone. So I'm like, okay, I'm listening. Uh... Uh, and it's a topical cream that's human growth hormone. So I'm like, yeah, I'll take it. It's good for anti-aging, good for your hair, bones, nails, whatever. I need to interject here. HGH has not been proven by the FDA to be effective for any of these uses. So I, I take HGH for a week, which is rubbing it on my arms, and I start having panic attacks on stage. As you're building up to your Netflix yeah, special. Yeah, I'm talking days. To before my Netflix special. The night before, I couldn't get on stage because I was having a panic attack. Uh, when I did the Sprite commercial with LeBron, had a panic attack in his trailer. Nice. A guy I've met before. It was fucking... Cr- like, I had no idea what was happening. I've never had panic in my life. Did you connect it to the HGH? Yeah. Um, no, it was the lifesavers. It was lifesavers, obviously. Yeah, yeah obviously. I, I was back on the, li- on the savers. Um, so I stopped taking HGH, but I kept getting panic attacks for like another month and a half. So I went back on Zoloft. And I've been on Zoloft since. That was like last uh, November or something. Depression, I know how to deal with. Um, panic, 
anxiety I'd never dealt with. So it it's really, uh, I found it like infantilizing because you can't operate. I couldn't do anything. I was like paralyzed. Your heart is racing, your throat's closing. You can't think clearly because it's like you're taking on water in a submarine. So you're like trying, and I couldn't speak. I would get so panicked that I like couldn't, couldn't breathe. It was awful. Three mics ultimately did get made, and it was a hit. Neil was asked to write a book. So I'm writing a chapter, and I was writing about what my inner monologue sounded like. And I had the thought that my friends were going to read this, and I was embarrassed. Meaning, I was thinking about specific friends of mine reading it and being like, the fuck, man? Like, you know what I mean? Like, them being disappointed that I was still thinking that way. Disappointed that this is what's going on inside your mind. Yeah, but like, in a, it's so, it runs counter, it's counterfactual. It's not, it's not reality. It's stupid. So I literally just wrote like negative thinking into Google and, uh, and CBT came up because it's like very effective apparently. CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. It's designed around reprogramming the thinking patterns that have led to problems. Stuff like all or nothing thinking when you think that if you're not perfect at something, that means you are a failure. Or catastrophizing, believing any outcome will always be the worst possible outcome. Once I saw that, I was like, oh, so my thoughts are not unique. These are not unique thinking patterns. So I just sort of would write those down every day. And then the more I noticed myself doing that, I would kind of disqualify those thoughts. Between that and Zoloft, I felt healthier. And then honestly, three mics being successful made me feel good like in a in a deep way and writing for snl and doing that well maybe go like okay i'm running out like my inner monologue had was losing credibility like all right dude i don't know what the fuck you're what reality you're living in but like i'm the evidence doing is good. overwhelming yeah, like i'm doing good like shut the you're fucking you sound like a moron you sound like a talk radio caller <laughs> uh <laughs> so yeah that's funny that's like actually a good way to like hear it yeah, this is uh, Jeff from Inside Your Mind. As I talked to Neil, I kept thinking about the load that he had carried since childhood. The negative impulses, the quest for wellness, the family issues that he has to carry around every day. In Three Mics, he talks about how his father threatened to write Neil out of his will before he died. The next week... I got an email on my phone, and it said, like, the will of Daniel J. Brennan. It's like, well, I guess I'll open it, which, by the way, isn't in the commercials. It's not like, listen to music, take selfies, open wills. <laughs> so I open it on the street in New York, and I'm scrolling down, and it says, like, my son Joe gets one-tenth. My daughter Sheila gets one-tenth. Then it got to me, and... It said, my son Neil gets nothing. Which still hurts, you know? And I know you're thinking, didn't you just say you got a little bit of gold? Yeah, but it wasn't about that. It was like, if my dad was giving out blankets, I would have wanted a blanket, you know? It just felt like a little flick to the back of the ear, like, 
this is what your relationship with me was like, and now it's over, and there's nothing you can do. When things had thawed between my father and I, I was talking to him one day, and I go, I go, Dad, I feel like you didn't love us. And he's like, yeah, you're right, I didn't. Which is a really horrible thing to hear, but it also felt good. Because my whole life, I felt like I was insane. Because I'd say to people, like, I don't think my dad loves me. And they'd be like, of course your dad loves you. And I'd be like, no, I'm pretty sure my dad doesn't love me. <laughs> so for him to just say it point blank, I didn't love you, was both excruciating and liberating. Because it, it meant I wasn't crazy. Having gone through that, Neil has been looking at his life and wondering how to live it. The way I talk about it in the show of like him basically saying he didn't love us, um, it was good. To, it was clarifying for sure. And it, it made me feel like not crazy, which is great. Um, I can't say that the hole that it should have gone in is filled. Um, right now, I'm more focused on just like self-acceptance and, um, and that as-is thing. I'm just like, no, I'm a decent moral person and I'm going to go on that assumption. And can I, let's say I never write as fast as Mulaney or Chris or Dave or Louie or whatever. Burr. Is my life a waste? You know what I mean? Like, what if that doesn't change? I don't think it's going to. Yeah, it's not who you are. No, it's sorry. You know what I mean? Um, and I've straight up been shamed for it. Rock was actually like 20 minutes. <laughs> I was like, yes. Like, what the fuck do you want me to do? I'm not going to squeeze. I, I don't know what to tell you. We can't all be Chris Rock. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, it's like, so there's the thing of like, okay, so I'll write at my pace and there's, a, I can also do other shit that most people can't do. So they're like, you know, there's like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm talented and I'm, uh, like I'm good. Like I'm, 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 uh, I'm worthwhile. And even if I wasn't, I'd still be worthwhile. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. just like this thing of like, well, that doesn't. You didn't need to prove anything in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. So is this a new realization on your part that, that no matter how many minutes you come up with a year, no matter how many credits you have, yeah. that's not going to be the key to happiness? Yeah. It's been that. It's also been like achieving enough stuff to go like, okay, well, what else do you want to achieve? Like. I cared about two things in my life, maybe three. I'll say sketches, stand-up, and documentaries. Did a great sketch show, did a great stand-up show. Maybe I'll make a great documentary. Like, but so what, so now what? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so what am I, I did it all and I may do it again or I may not, or it can't be, it's a lot of it's very haphazard. And it's also relying on a brain that's that's uh, a fucking complete mystery. Brains are mysteries. Who knows where the, these things come from? When did you have this breakthrough that that that's 
that you can't achieve your way out of depression? I, I've sl- I've had it slowly a lot, but I think in the last three or four or five months, I did the SNL thing, and then me and my girlfriend at the time went to Bali, and we were hanging out, and she was like, you're really happy. And I was like, yeah, I like not working. And I was like, oh, okay, I should think about that. <laughs> like, I like not working. So I should take that in consideration with um, what I see as a worthwhile life. Mm-hmm. Like, it can't all be work. It can't all be, I want to, I, I want to have, I want to enjoy myself. Yeah. And, and, and always feeling like you're behind is a, pretty good guarantee that you're not going to enjoy yourself. Neil's been thinking a lot about comedians he knew who aren't around anymore. A few, like Gary Shandling died, who I knew a little bit, and then Charlie Murphy died, who I knew very well. And and the thought, I just thought like, well, that's, Chappelle thought this is so macabre, but I was like, he's Charlie's mud now. <laughs> And he was like, Jesus. And I'm like, he is. Like, we're all going to be mud. So in the meantime, let's, I want to enjoy myself. What do I like? Like, what do I like doing? I like sketches. I like, but the thing I like about sketches is I like writing. I like having an idea and I like writing it with Dave or Colin Jost or Michael Che or any of these people that I've written with or Michael Schur or these, like my friends that I write with. And that's fun. And the thing I like about stand-up is I like the actual thing of it, but I like the environment. I like the process. I like trying jokes out. I like, so it's, it's uh, coming up with my own standard for what's fun and what's worthwhile because um, ultimately, like I had a friend who said that he wants to be remembered after he's dead. He's in showbiz. And I go, uh, so you're assuming that even in death, you're going to be insecure. <laughs> like this idea of like, what are they saying? You're fucking mud. You'll never, Shakespeare's dead as fuck. Like everyone die. It's all like for naught, basically. So the only thing it's not for naught is the experience of like, what is it like minute to minute? And how do I get, I also meditate, which I think has Again, it's part of the cocktail. But so it's getting to the point of like feeling good in my body in the moment. Isn't it interesting that the state of where your mind is during the worst parts of depression where you feel like uh, nothing and you're kind of isolated and and you're all alone and, and nothing means anything is similar to a better state that you're describing yeah, it's, it's where nothing means like very much. State. Yeah. Yeah. Things are small and meaningless. And then depression would say, see, so you should kill yourself. Whereas, uh, enlightenment would say you should enjoy yourself. Here's one more clip from three mics. You know, sometimes the world can feel like a room that's filling up with water and for me to be able to think of a joke is like a, it's like an air bubble, like a, and I can take the oxygen I get into my lungs and it can carry me forward. Like things can be overwhelming and scary and hurtful, but thankfully my brain can descramble things and form a joke. 
like just for one second, things slow down and I can win, like I can beat life. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Our technical director this time around is Veronica Rodriguez. Thanks also to Nate Toby. Our theme song is called Pagliacci, and it was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller. Much more about Rhett is at his website. As you might expect, that's why we have websites, rhettmiller.com. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's free. 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. You can also remember the 8255 because it spells out the word talk. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation about something like this can be awkward, but Make It OK has tips on what to say and what not to say. You can find stories of hope from people who have been there, and you can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. We're on Twitter at THW of D, that's T-H-W-O-F-D. And on Facebook, you can find us there as well. You can write to us, T-H-W-O-D, THWOD, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. And hey, if you can, stop by Apple Podcasts, give us a rating, review us, write something up. If you could, it really helps a whole lot. On the next episode, John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars and a YouTube video blogger. He has sold millions of books, which somehow didn't cure his mental illness. There is this weird perpetual hope, um, not just, I think, among people with, with mental illnesses, but maybe, I don't know if it's American or if it's human or what, but there does seem to be this weird perpetual hope that if I just get this one thing that my life is missing, uh, the hole inside of me will be filled. I was once speaking to a very wealthy person, um, and they literally said to me, if I could just own a plane instead of, you know, having like a fractional lease situation. <laughs> and I was wow. like, stop the sentence, stop the sentence, stop, stop, hold on. You cannot seriously believe that. Like, you can't seriously think like, oh, I'm still just the one thing away. I'm one plane away from, from ultimate <laughs> fulfillment. I'm John Moe. Bye now. <laughs>